Well, I have another question I want to ask you today, and that is about one of the first joyous carols that was sung in honor of the coming of the Lord Jesus in the first advent. And that is found in the Gospel of Luke, if you will turn with me there. We've sang some Christmas carols today. Every day in Advent, my family has a different activity we do that celebrates the first coming of Christ. And one of the things we did yesterday, maybe your family has an Advent calendar. Bella will open the door to her Advent calendar and draw out a little piece of paper. And on that piece of paper yesterday, it said, sing Christmas carols together as a family. So we sing about the first coming of Jesus called Advent, where there's another hymn that was sung in expectation of the first coming of Jesus by someone we talked about Wednesday night, that being the uh, one who served as a priest, being Zechariah. Zechariah sung a hymn, and he did so in the end of Luke chapter 1, after his son was born, John the Baptist, who was the predecessor to Christ. And we see that after his son was born at the end of, uh, or the beginning of the, the 60s of Luke chapter 1, that he was mute but then became unmute when they decided to name his son John. And the first thing he did once he became unmute was he sang a song of praise to the Lord. And here is the hymn of praise which he sang upon the birth of John the Baptist pointing towards the coming of Christ. This is Luke chapter 1 verses uh, 67. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed the people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is speaking of Christ. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, who have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. In Holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, speaking of John the Baptist. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of God with which the day spring on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and a shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. May God bless the reading of his words. What a wonderful Advent hymn pointing to the reason of Christ's coming. And Zacharias prophesied this uh, uh, upon not only the, the knowledge of his son John the Baptist being born, but he knew because of the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth that John was going to prepare the way for the horn of salvation from the house of David, who was Christ. So this really was a Christmas hymn. It was an Advent hymn talking about the Son of God who would be born to save the world. As I read this, and as I read his expectations about what the Messiah would do, I started meditating on verses 74 to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, 
might serve him without fear. As I was reading this text, you know you always read the Bible with a filter. Your filter could be the day you've had. It could be the sermon you heard last night from uh, uh, you know, some preacher on the radio or TV. It could have been what you read in your devotional that determines your filter. Well, as I was reading this, my filter was telling me that Zechariah was hoping to be rescued from the oppression of the Romans. As he says, this horn of salvation will deliver us from the hand of our enemies. And maybe that's what the nation of Israel and Zechariah was looking forward to. He also says in verse 71 that salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. So maybe that's what Zechariah was looking forward to. But I began to contemplate how odd that prophecy sounded because Christ, being the horn of David, did not deliver Israel from the Romans. Christ, being the promised seed to Abraham, did not free them from national oppression. Does everyone follow with me? Christ did not accomplish those things. No matter of fact, they were never delivered from the hand of Roman oppression. And 70 years later, their city, including the temple, was entirely destroyed. So I started understanding that the physical properties in this song of Zechariah did not come true. But then that's when I remembered that this was not simply Zechariah speaking about what he believed was going to happen. This was actually the Holy Spirit speaking through him as a prophecy. It says in verse 67, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied these things. So there was a prophecy of the Spirit declaring what was going to happen and I began to realize that this prophecy was declaring a deliverance of a spiritual sense. This prophecy of Zechariah was promising that the horn of David would be a deliverance in the spiritual sense, not the physical sense. Verse 74 says that the horn of David will deliver us from the hand of our enemies. So the question that we ask is what enemy did the advent, the son of God, deliver us from? And I started meditating on that. What are we delivered from supernaturally from our enemies? And actually we find a great overarching description of the enemy found in Revelations 12. If you'd like to, turn with me there. See, we're going to connect the dots of what the advent caused to happen. What the coming of Christ caused to happen. Because here's the deal. Christmas is not about the baby. It's not about the manger. It's not about the wise men. Christmas is about what the advent accomplished. The advent accomplished your spiritual deliverance. Revelation chapter 12. Says this. Verse 7. War broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his uh, angels were cast with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God 
and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives to death. Now, we know through this scripture that the dragon is referred to as being cast down. The dragon was defeated. The war that broke out in heaven between the dragon and the archangel resulted in the dethroning of the dragon. The removal from his place of influence and power. The question I have for you is when did this event happen? Because a lot of people think that that is a forward event. But see, if you'll look behind verse 7, you'll see verse 5. That the woman in this vision bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This is speaking of Christ the Messiah. She bore a male child, gave birth to a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Speaking of the ascension of Christ. So after Christ came, died on the cross for the purchase of our salvation, ascended back to God on his throne. It says the woman fled into the place of the wilderness. Speaking of the church. After that, after the advent and the cross, was when the war broke out in heaven. And that's what resulted in the dragon being cast out. That's what resulted in the enemy being removed from his power. My friends, let me let you know something today. The cross defeated the devil once and for all. The cross defeated the dragon. The cross removed him from his place of rulership in the heavenlies where he was able to accuse the brethren day and night. And after the cross, he is no longer able to accuse the brethren because there is no longer condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Somebody needs to get a little fired up this morning. Amen. You see, the enemy has been removed from his place of power and the weapon that he had no longer has power over you. What was his weapon, that you might ask? That's a good question. Let me drink on that. The weapon that he had as the accuser was the condemnation that comes from sin. The weapon that he had was the condemnation that comes from sin. And since he no longer has a place of power, his weapon no longer has any place of power over the brethren. Let's unpack that a little bit. The only power that the enemy ever had was to accuse you of breaking God's law. The only power that the devil had to tempt with was to cause you to sin to break your relationship with God. Matter of fact, this is his first weapon in the garden He used the tactics of a lie to get it accomplished, but his end result was that Adam and Eve would sin because their sin would result in a broken fellowship with God. If he could get them to sin and then feel guilt and condemnation, that guilt and condemnation would push them away from God's fellowship. You see, the weapon that he had was sin resulting in guilt and condemnation. The only power that he ever had, and that's what it was, and when the accusation comes... It comes with guilt and condemnation, and that breaks fellowship with God. Here's what he knew in the garden, that once Adam and Eve sinned, they would receive that guilt, resulting in a broken fellowship. This is what is referred to as the curse of the law. The curse of the law is that it causes guilt and condemnation, which ultimately leads to death. 
The sinful lifestyle ultimately leads to death. And it's actually a spiritual death. And that spiritual death occurs because of broken fellowship with God with guilt and condemnation. That's his strategy from the beginning and his tactic from the beginning. Galatians 3.13 tells us that Christ, speaking of the first advent, which is about the cross, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The Old Testament declared this. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. You see, you and I were under a curse that brought guilt and condemnation. So in order to break that curse, Jesus became the curse for us. I want to ask you a question. At your house on the Christmas tree, you got all kind of ornaments. You know, we got trumpets, angels, pretty silvery balls, the cross. I want to encourage you to get an ornament. I want to encourage you to get Jesus on the cross. This is called a crucifix. And I want you to know that that's the most important Advent symbol. Because Galatians 3.13 says, Cursed is everyone who hung on a tree. When Christ hung on a tree for our sins, that's what Christmas is about. That he reversed the curse that you and I were under. It was him hanging on a tree for our sin that broke the power of that curse. And the power of that curse was guilt and condemnation that caused separation with God. Christ broke it. They broke the law. They broke the power of the law in your life. But here's what some preachers try to do. They try to use the curse of the law, being guilt and condemnation, as a tool to correctly guide the Christian. Do you see this? Some preachers try to use a curse to guide the Christian, being the preaching of the law. Let me tell you, the preaching of the law will always result in guilt and condemnation. So if my end result is guilt and condemnation, then I'll preach the law. This is effective to the sinner who does not know Christ because they boast in their own pridefulness. And you preach the law to the sinner and it takes away their self-righteousness, it takes away their pride, and it puts them on their knees before God. But when we try to use the law to the Christian, we're using the curse against the one who has been redeemed from the curse. Do you see this? That does not work. I was talking with a man this week. Matter of fact, a gentleman from our church named Chase Parker was there with me. And we were inviting this man to come visit friendship. Now he said he had a home church, but what he said really stunned me. He said, I have a church that I go to every week. But every time I go there, I feel like I've been beat down. My friend, the only one who should result in being beat down from the gospel is Lucifer. The only one who should walk away from a Sabbath day being beat down is the enemy, the serpent, the dragon, because he's dethroned from his place of power when the gospel is preached. The Christian should never walk away from the gospel being beat down. We should be beat up, encouraged and uplifted. We should be fired up, victorious, ready to take on the gospel to the nations. And that comes from the preaching of grace, not from the law. See, you can't use the curse to bring about good behavior. The curse only results in guilt and condemnation. The gospel does not beat us down but lift us up and empowers us with grace so that we can go out and do the work of God. 
And let me tell you something. You're not going to share something that makes you feel bad. You know, a lot of people don't share the gospel because they hear a gospel that makes them feel bad. And that's not good news at all. That's bad news. I mean, you know, if I come up to you and I tell you, hey, I'm going to give you $100,000. That's good news. Makes you feel good. If I come up to tell you and I say, hey, your dog just got ran over. That makes you feel bad. That's bad news. You see, good news should never result in feeling beat down. Bad news makes you feel beat down. The law is bad news because it says that we are rendered unjust before Christ. But the gospel is good news that Christ died to redeem you from the curse of the law. My friends, that should lift us up today. Praise the Lord. So let's get back to the good news. And the good news is that the enemy no longer has power over you. The law no longer has power over you. And the sting of the law, which is death and sin, no longer have power over you. God did allow the devil to have power over your life at one time. God allowed sin to reign supreme in your life at one time because he knew that sin would lead you to the cross. And that's God's avenue. The only way to get to the cross is by seeing our own sinfulness. This is the pathway. But see, the law stops at Calvary. And to get you through the Calvary, to get you through the cross, grace takes over. Here's what happens. The law brings us to Jesus. Grace takes over. And then we try to put the law back in effect. My friend, it won't work. The law worked back there. B.C. In my life, there's B.C. A.D. Before I met Jesus, after I met Jesus. The law worked in B.C. Now grace works in A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. This is why the scripture says... We must rightly divide the word of truth. We must understand what happened before the cross and what happened after the cross and not flip-flop those. You can't apply the law after the cross because it leads... I mean, literally, the Bible is divided that way. The Old Testament leads to Jesus. And then you, you start something called the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and that's all about grace. That's going to take us the rest of the way. Grace takes us to revelation, not the law. What some Christians do, they flip it around backwards. you got the Old Testament over here. They put it like this. And now they're going to read up to Jesus, but then get stuck in the law. That's backwards. <laughs> it's like driving down the highway looking in your rearview mirror. It's not designed to do that. God allowed sin to run its course in your life. Once we exhausted the pleasures of the flesh and realized that they led to death, then we are on our knees and we can only look up. But now that we pass through the cross, we're subject to a higher law. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says this, If the ministry that brought death, which is engraved in letters on stone, speaking of the law, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look at the face of the Moses, even though it was transitory, it means fading away. Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious at the time, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? Here's the deal. The law brings condemnation. That's the curse. The cross brings righteousness. That's the blessing. Our job is to preach the cross. To preach the good news. For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. That means the law no longer has effect in the life of the Christian See, it did have a purpose to bring you to Jesus, but now there's something that has a greater purpose. That is grace. That is the cross. That is righteousness. 
what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came a glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Speaking of Christ, the gospel, and grace. There was a ministry that brought condemnation. The ministry of the law. But now, dear Christian, you are subject to the ministry that brings righteousness, the message of the cross. And oh, it's so much better than just you can be saved. You've heard a short gospel most of your life. Jesus wants you to be saved. And then they stop there. Can I tell you that Jesus wants much more than that? He wants you to be righteous, sanctified, and justified as the son of the most high God. Reigning over his creation. In his place, you are the body of Christ. The message of the cross is that you can be righteous through Christ. And it doesn't get any better than this. Let us know that the enemy has been removed from his position and his weapon no longer has power over you. I want you to look back at Luke chapter 1. To know this, that verse 74, we are delivered from the hand of our enemies that we might serve him without fear. Okay, my first point, if you're taking notes, is that we are rescued from the hand of the enemy. Secondly, we are enabled to serve God without fear. But you might say, preacher, didn't you say a few weeks ago, God is great, fear is good, people are crazy. I sure did. But remember that we defined in the Old Testament what proper fear looked like. Proper fear means the awe and reverence of God. It is not an afraid of God, it is a respect of God. That is proper fear. That is the reverence due to God because we have knowledge of his power. But the word used in Luke 174, which is serve God without fear, is actually the word aphobos, meaning ah without phobos, phobia, without a phobia of God. We can serve God without a phobia of service because we can serve in freedom. We can serve God without a, a afraidness. You see, proper fear is the reverential respect. But a phobia of God, what Luke 174 is talking about, is being afraid of God. And that comes from the law, guilt and condemnation. Guilt and condemnation makes us afraid of God. This is why Adam and Eve hid. But the cross makes us boldly enter the throne of grace because we can enter covered with the blood of Jesus. The cross destroys the power of the law, destroys the phobia. If you have a phobia about Christian ministry, then you're going to stay away from Christian ministry. If you have a phobia about God, you'll stay away from God. But because Christ has become a curse for us and removed the power of sin, the law, and death, we can live in such a way that we are not afraid of the enemy and not afraid of God. We can serve God without fear because Christ has made us holy. We can serve God in holiness. Did you know that the Old Testament priests had a tough time doing this? Fear that comes from the law is not the proper motivator in our relationship with Christ. Fear should not be the proper motivator in our message about Christ. You cannot get a Christian to properly live a sanctified lifestyle by the preaching of the law. Fear will not motivate the saved. Fear will not motivate the children of God. What will motivate the children of God is their understanding of grace and love. There have been some recent tools in our humanistic philosophy that are actually disguised fear tactics designed to keep us in a right relationship. This Sunday in the Gospel Project Sunday School curriculum, we're talking about a Christian worldview. Let me tell you that legalism has crept into many of the dominant worldviews that even take place among Christians in the church. And I'm going to give you one example of a recent one, and that is this. 
How many of you know what this is? See, I have various different names from it, but I'm going to explain it. I'm not an elf-on-the-shelf hater. But the practice is what bothers me sometimes. You see, I call this the legalism on the shelf. You see, the traditional model of this, and let me tell you, there's a woman who's a billionaire because she sewed together some little pieces of cloth, put a hat on it, and glued a hat on it. This hat comes off every other day. We have to hot glue it. It's not even worth that. She wrote a little book about it that says, the elf comes to see if you're good enough so that he can report to Santa at Christmas time. And this is what the message become, that Christmas becomes about what you have deserved or not. And, and the, the, the mentality is this elf gets placed on a shelf. That's why it's called an elf on a shelf. And he's going to watch you for 25 days, 24 technically, till Christmas time. And he's going to watch you to see if you're good enough. And if you're good enough, he'll talk to Santa Claus. And then you'll get all the presents you asked for. So therefore, Christmas now becomes about you got something because you earned it. Which has nothing to do with grace. You know what this is? This is legalism. This is works-based righteousness and self-righteousness. That has what Christmas has become. This is the whole mentality of Santa Claus. Now, I got a message called the real St. Nicholas, who was a good Christian fellow. But let me tell you, what it has morphed into is about merited favor. That's not grace. Merited favor says if you're good enough, you're going to get what you want. But if not, you're going to get coal in your stocking. And that is the opposite of the gospel. So what we have attached to Christmas time is a secular, humanistic, pagan philosophy that says you get what you earn. My friend, that's the most un-Christmas thing I've ever heard. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't come because you're good. He came because you're bad. (laughs) The first advent says you're bad. And here's what you should tell your kids when they misbehave at Christmas time. You're bad. Because we love you, we're going to give you graceful gifts. That's the Christmas message. If you can't do that, don't give anything. If you can't give out of grace, then don't attach it to Christianity or Advent or the gospel. Why do you think we have so many grow up that leave church? Because they grow up hurting that, this mystical figure is watching them to see if they're going to get something because of the way they're good enough. That's not God. That's not Christ. That's not Christmas. You see, this causes us to get ready for Christmas in fear. Well, if I'm good enough, I'm going to have a good Christmas. If I'm not good enough, that little elf's going to tell on me. And fear is the motivator for the Christmas season, which is about the gospel. We should be appalled and shocked at these type of messages that the world is attaching that to the glorious message of grace so elf I rebuke you in Jesus name and let me tell you I saw one guy post on Facebook he said this he said I just use that thing to make my kids behave well let me tell you what if a fake puppet that lives in a magical land where they make invisible toys is your best bet of discipline my friend I don't think your child is the one in danger of being on the naughty list We've got a lot bigger problems if this helps our children behave. How about we just love our kids? Do not exasperate your children. Be the example of the gospel in the home and let the Holy Spirit transform our children. Maybe that's a crazy idea, but I think it'll work. Praise the Lord. You see, with the cause of the cross, it has removed the law and condemnation that comes 
from sin, we can serve God without fear. Let me tell you what, God's not looking at you every day to see if you fall. God's not looking at you to see if you mess up. Matter of fact, the whole purpose of Jesus' blood was to cover your mess-ups so that God doesn't see them, so that the Scripture says he remembers your sins no more. God has selective amnesia. He doesn't even see your sin. He's the opposite of the elf. The elf's looking at you to see when you stumble. God already knew you stumbled and crushed his son for you. That's Christmas. And lastly, Luke 175 says this. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Let me preface that. It says, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Of our life, that we can serve God in holiness and righteousness. Can I tell you that the, the, the Christmas song of Luke 175 contains the most powerful points of the gospel? That what Christ has done enables us to serve God while being holy and sanctified and justified because of Jesus? That you can serve God sanctified and justified, holy and righteous because of Christ. 